Evan's conversation with Drew Parrish on this week's episode was long, it was winding, but one thing that we noticed when we were going through it is that it was really heartfelt. You know, Drew has a lot of opinions and a lot of thoughts that he's not afraid to share because he, he believes in them to his core, and far be it from us to say if they're right or not right, but we really appreciated him coming on and, and sharing all of those thoughts and really giving some great insight from stuff that he's thought on a lot. Unfortunately, we had to cut a lot of it out of that main episode just because it was it was so long and it didn't fit in with the narrative overall of where the episode was going. So here we wanted to include we called it a rant, I think, in the in the episode. We wanted to include the full rant in its entirety to give light to his thoughts and, and to really give him a platform to speak this because he doesn't speak publicly that often. So we're excited to get this out there. The extended rant from this week's episode. Here it is. Yeah, that's crazy. So, you know, you had some experience with machining from your family growing up. Where did the 3D printing come from? Because you said you got involved when it was like 2002. I mean, in infancy, just yeah. like you said, it was like witchcraft. So how did you even get involved in the first place? So this is another, like, I think very important, like life-defining moment. And I'm glad you asked that question. When I graduated from my postgraduate program, which was one of the best in the world for architecture at Sire. And my graduate director there, Michael Speaks, who was the Dean of College of Design at UK after like, we followed each other there uh, when I taught at UK, he sat me down. He's like, look, here's the deal. You're the second best in your program. You're probably the top 10 in the school of 500 which means you're probably in the top 1,000 in the United States, which means you're probably in the top 10,000 in the world. In the story, if you want to do something in architecture, you might want to be indirect. And it was like an eye-opening moment, right? Design is a, is a luxury. To design what you want means you have to have capital. Capital or like the type of talent that is just like, you know, like, F1 horsepower. Like, nobody can argue with these. Ah, oh, Hadid, Rimkel, how stuff like that. But I just remember, like, like at that moment, just like, the, the world is not this direct and simple. And so his, his advice was just like, what does this world need? They need to make things. More and more people are designing things that people don't know how to make. Hey, Drew, you're a redneck. You've, you know how to use a hammer, right? You grew up around machines. Can you help bridge this type of thing? So... I remember in that conversation, I was like, okay, well, that's a deal. So, like, get in a position that is meaningful in, in the world's supply chain that doesn't have to be the superstar position. You don't have to be the person at the podium wearing, the, wearing all black, beautiful gray hair, like, personal glasses, whatever it is, and dictate, like, a utopian future. Control the world around them. Facilitate it. And it's something that I... I naturally lean towards like I'm passionate about other things and I like the speed of things happening versus more so than the integrity of the idea like I'd rather have a thousand ideas percolate them all and just shoot the ones that fail as you know as they're rising up or starting to fall down so um so with that said I just it was funny the company that ended up being the BP for BD I couldn't make a model to save my life in architecture school so I was very industrious and I was like what kind of place can make a model for me? And so I found this company because <laughs> I didn't know how to make a model of what I was doing in Maya. 
And so while I was doing this with them, I was telling them like, no, there's tons of like, this is big, like architecture people don't know how to make this crap, like blah, 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 blah. And they're like, maybe you could be good in business development. Then I go out and I get Zaha Hadid's business. I go out and I get like other people's business filtering through here. And it's like, I love, like we'll just jump real quick into architecture for a second. Like all of a sudden I realized I was doing more of what an architect does than an architect. Brunelleschi, right? Have you ever been to Florence, Italy? No. So Il Duomo, the largest dome in the world, the Medici's, the, the people that invented capital pretty much, wanted to build the biggest dome in the world. They hired Brunelleschi to build this dome. Brunelleschi didn't know how to articulate how to build the dome to the people to make it. So he took on linear perspective as a drawing mechanism to show people what it looks like rendered in 3D. It's still the basic software that we use in every 3D package now. And where did it come from? A crazy idea. A crazy idea in the, the ability or inability for somebody to talk about that idea to a mass of people, right? Yeah. So is the dome the solution that came out of that, right? It's the software. It's the way we think about it. So anyway, like, so here I am in this position because I was dumb. I had big ideas on paper. I couldn't make the thing. I didn't have the talent. But because I grew up in a place where you put like woodcrafts and ice cream with tanning beds, I was like, get on the internet, right? figure it out, find this place, go down, and then they buy the journey, right? Yeah. So that's how I got into 3D printing, just because I didn't know how to do something. Yeah, out of necessity. Out of necessity. Which is where you know great ideas come from. That's right. Uh, so you kind of lead it in uh, to, to make time. You found a friend that was an investment banker, saw some potential, mm -hmm. said, hey, this is a marketplace. Mm -hmm. Marketplaces are by far probably one of the best business models there are. Hardest. Um, yeah, we can get into how, how hard that is, but what were the first things you did when he approached you and said, hey, this needs to be on the internet? Okay. What, what was the next, what'd you do? Yeah. So, you know, I've had enough time, or to say enough brain space in the last six months to look back. And it's, it's funny, I'm getting sensitive about what happened in the beginning because and this is where I'll be candid. Kentucky has what I like to call the 90s MTV problem. So where I grew up in Henderson, like, you know, cable TV was first coming out. This is embarrassing that I have to say that. But people were, like, culturally leapfrogging, right, to embrace what was on TV. Now, of course, we, like, we do that, like, by the nanosecond. Every day, yeah. But so, and we all being Kentuckians, like, you know that, like, we've got a chip on our shoulder, like, you know, we see things, we we just do it. Like, we just take it on. And we, and I don't know if it's because we're somewhat embarrassed of where we're from or what we really are, but we become, I think Kentuckians are really good chameleons, right? So I just remember, like, in the 90s, all of a sudden, people just went straight Doc Martens, grunge, like, whatever, without knowing anything, right? And this is, like, you see this all the time now. And, like, you know, people wearing Raiders jackets, like, you know, like spouting out Ice Cube and Lynch Mob Lake, and you're like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> like, you've just left the tanning bed parlor slash ice cream store. Like, but the reason why I'm talking about that is I did all the things that I thought you were supposed to do as a startup. And I did all the things that this backwards-ass town of Lexington taught people to do if you're a startup. So the first thing is, the most important thing, you must go out and raise capital on your idea. It's not true. Like, I raised money without a product. I had a manual book of business. I had a notepad, a spiral notepad, 
that had suppliers and people that bought stuff. That was my product. That was your CRM. That it was <laughs> the baseline CRM of what we were building. But I had that, and at this point, like we didn't go about it in the intro, but I had the, the galleries that I was donating this time to, and like got this weird community of artists and designers around all this. And so I was like, oh, okay, now we gotta go get money, right? So the first thing I did, like before I had a product, but I had business, like that was the difference. A lot of technology companies don't have business. I had business, but I didn't have technology. That's a weird problem. You've been have. doing the business for 10 plus years. 10 plus years, yeah. I was an entrepreneur. Yeah. Entrepreneur, like scalable to this point, I could have had a very nice life, like maybe three jet skis, right? Like maybe houseboat, like, house big, maybe not the biggest. Like I think the biggest, the second biggest in Kentucky is Lee Greer's, and I think it's called El Qu or Queso Grande, El Queso Grande, big cheese, after Cheddar's, like restaurants. But anyway, I don't even see. Here's one thing about you: is I just said houseboats randomly, yeah. and you knew something. You knew how to talk. You could probably talk thirty minutes about houseboats. I can talk about houseboats. Anyway, just keep going. We'll keep going. Yeah. Because I can't get it. I love houseboats. Um, RJ Corman had a helipad on his houseboat. Who, who's got to get to their houseboat so fast? <laughs> right? No, 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 no. You got to put a helipad on it because I got to get there in under 30 minutes so I can relax. Is that not a yacht? What is, what's? No, it's a houseboat. It's a houseboat. He is a houseboat on, uh, I think it was Lawrenceburg or where one of the lakes was. Can but, there be a houseboat on, a, on the ocean or is that a yacht? That's a yacht. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, I mean, house is not the defining term. Like, it's something with the chassis, right? I, I don't know what the, I don't know. That's a good question. Why is it not a houseboat? It might be just because where we're from that we describe things versus it's, calling it's it. It's redneck versus East what Coast, is, West what Coast, is that? Miami. That is a house on a boat. On a boat. <laughs> yeah. So, um, anyway, like, I don't even know what we're talking about. So, I didn't have a, I didn't have a product. Yeah. I didn't have technology. I wasn't ready to scale. But then I raised a million and a quarter dollars from friends and family. Went out, hustled. Like, bam, bam, bam. Bluegrass Angels, like, you suck. Like, <laughs> this is never going to take off. Give it to the guy with the light-up vest. Like, like constantly. Like, it was stuff like this. This isn't real. We need, like, a filtration system. That'll take off. But they were actually right, like, in hindsight. There's no, like, scalable thing here. I was, like, showing, like, screens and stuff that could happen. Like, but... And we can get to this later. It is our community's responsibility to help people into that transition versus putting them in the same pool, right? So, like, whereas, and I'll say one thing, Sean O'Leary in that process was one of the most meaningful people in the business. I don't know if you guys know Sean O'Leary, right? Now he's VP of operations over at Think. He was, like, without Sean, and we'll get into Sean in a second, none of this would exist. None of this would like, he was the guy after the VGA, have a coffee. Let's talk about what, what needs to happen. So, like, Lexington has those jewels, right? Those jewels yeah. that are so few and far between. So, anyway, so I raised a million and a quarter dollars. I was like, what do you do? What do you got to do now? Then it's like, well, you got to start staffing up. I didn't need to start staffing up. I didn't need the million and a quarter dollars. I needed, like, to take some money, put it towards technology, test validate the product, see if I could do the same business offline or online that I was doing offline. But now all of a sudden I had the burden of capital. The burden of capital is the worst thing in the world, right? Because there's no forgiveness in that. You're just like, okay, you got to grow, grow, grow. Where's the revenue? Well, the will check this out. Like, so then you're like running a manual book of business while you're trying to grow a product and you're smashing things. You can't focus on anything. 
you're hiring people, like then you're, you're doing all the things that you're told that you should do. You need an advisor, an advisor out on the West Coast. They're gonna help you navigate this stuff. They're not, they're just not. <laughs> None of them are. It's like they're, you know, for the most part, they're helpful, they're helpful for hire. You know, I mean, they, everybody wants skin in the game. And the people that helped us early on, I love them. They were extremely helpful, but I, I didn't need them. Like, yeah. what I needed was like an affirmative stop, don't take capital, build a product, test, validate, move on, son. Like, yeah. see what's happening. You were building something that previously didn't exist whatsoever. So you're, you're 100% right in the fact that what could somebody tell you mm-hmm. other than the, the simple business stuff that anybody could read out of a book because it's uncharted territory. Yes. It's not like you know a lot of SaaS businesses now. There's a playbook. Yep. There's 100%. no playbook for there wasn't. building a marketplace for machining. No, there wasn't yeah. at all. And one thing that was, in hindsight, particularly dangerous, because I was a subject matter expert operating in the business model, I was a little overpowering on any of the help that I could have had. Meaning, what you do in the real world doesn't translate. But everybody was concentrating on emulating what was working in the real world into this like neutral you know, tech space or whatever. And it wasn't one-to-one. And there wasn't a strong enough counterpart to me. Yeah. Whereas if, and I hate to say this, if I was somewhere else, a novel idea, like getting to the purity of the problem. Like, like for example, and we talked about this earlier, people bought into me brokering time because there was a handshake involved. Yeah, right? it's connection. So where's a smart person from University X that did research on this that said this will never translate on the web? It's not scalable. You know what I mean? Yeah. So what happens is you take the million and a quarter, you build a team, you take an office in Victorian Square, you build your, your desk out of doors, like you peel up the carpet to make it look somewhat sophisticated because you guys start recruiting people, start showing capital to work, like rinse cycle repeat, everybody knows the story. And the whole time you're shaking in your boots because many you take a million and a quarter and you start spending, that's like at most fully loaded, 10 people. Boom, you're out of money halfway through. You guys start fundraising again. So all of a sudden, I go from entrepreneur, hustle, hustler, somebody that knows how to make money. Like inherently, I can go make a dollar from work to a different work cycle of raising more money because the need for capital, and this is also because people are not saying, slow down, slow down, like, hey man, like, let's do this. Like maybe you don't need these six marketing people or whatever the hell they were at the time. Maybe we need to get more Ukrainian developers and do this. Like, nope, staff to grow. And so I'm a great recruiter, right? So go out, next thing you know, getting more people in. People are knocking on the door about sales, product, right? Where's product, right? There's not enough talent here to build the product, right? So I do hire the Ukrainians. Then you're managing Ukrainians. So the whole moral and that whole part, like what do you get, where'd you get started? The people that start businesses typically know what they need to do. There becomes a problem when you meet experts. Yeah, we got we got into that with Josh Lau. And yeah. so experts at best should be able to nudge the, the, the most prolific parts of the founder. Yeah. Right? Or they should just pull the thread out, like, or like be an e-break or these types of things. And here, Lexington has a particular problem. The the city is so hungry for, for growth is one it's a great thing. Yeah. Right? They're not particularly helpful. 
they're they're happy and they're they always put you in a coffee shop conversation with somebody that's got a million dollars that's earning like three percent a year and they think they're investors and like yeah. but that's not helpful and like and there's a place for that but so but just getting back to like where the first things I did they were all wrong 100% wrong like and now could I do this in my sleep yes but it was 100% wrong so then the next chapter is when I needed to go raise capital I raised two and a half million like that but it was on the novelness of the idea back to your point it's still the idea yeah the the product like it was in it was there it wasn't necessarily amazing or whatever then you learn along the way what's a refactor and you're like all of a sudden like six months later why do we rebuild our website because i wasn't a tech guy like so all these things happen and you just build more and more people and then you realize that like you love you immediately lost the opportunity to truly grab the problem by its horns and find the right solution this is like every founder yeah. Problem. Well, like, we would sound, you know, very similar things happened to Fuji. And guess what? Every startup ever. Yeah. Right? Even like, you know, just fake it till you make it, make it, make it, make it, like whatever you want to say, it's all the same stuff. And the thing that cracks me up is it, you know, everybody says that, you know, once you know the pattern, you can repeat the pattern, you, you're, you can go beyond the pattern, you can succeed. If that was really the case, We'd all be doing fantastic. We'd all be trillionaires right now. Yeah. So, yeah. and so that's where I am now. Like I, I just said, I can do this in my sleep, but I, I don't. I don't know to what end. Yeah. Right. And it, it's weird once you become move from being an entrepreneur to a, a CEO, right? Managing capital and in a fundraising cycle, you really start to question like. You just I don't know what the real model is anymore. From from a like a capital stance, like 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 what is the right model? So let's keep going on and some other questions. We'll get back to this because this is a big yeah. thing for me. No, I mean let's keep rolling, yeah. man. This is this is good stuff. Keep going. So the the, the problem that, or the thing that I see in all this, and we think about like Kentucky, right? And I joke about the the tanning the tanning bed. So people are descending, like you hear the rise of the rest with garbage. So tired of it. You hear like the other coast, and no offense to middle tech, we are in the middle, strong. You hear all the hopes and aspirations and the dreams for all these things, right? Like to build these businesses that are economies of scale. Venture only works with breakout. Like as an investment model, it only works if you're a billion dollar business or you're gonna do a nine figure exit or like an eight eight figure exit. Like, well, okay, but whatever. Yeah. But my point is, is like, how many ideas are there for that? And I know that there is a roulette game that you play. You, you, you know, you put the ball in the spinner and you, you hope to hit the one. But then, like, I always joke and with, a, with a colleague, and I won't say his name, but these startups are burning at the rate where if you bought a Dunkin' Donuts, fran you could buy a Dunkin' Donuts franchise per month. Yeah. And not to be stupid or coy. Well, and a lot more, you know, some startups, 20. So if you think about breakout success... Like, somebody has a hundred million, like a, a startup is, let's just say it gives you a budget for two million bucks a month. Yeah. It says, okay, Evan, here's two million bucks a month. You can buy whatever franchise you want, or you can dedicate it to one idea. Do you think the successes of gainful employment for the people that need that type of employment in whatever communities they are in, all the indirect benefits and the potential for them to get an education, go and have breakout moments, 
would be greater than or lesser than the type recruiting the talent and the high grade talent that it takes to go inside of a startup, right? And all the things and the indirect benefits off of that. So my point is, it's like, I don't know if we're in the right model for capital deployment or if this is the right place for that. Because the next thing you hear is like, well, we've got to leapfrog, we've got to bring in the tech resources, we've got to like increase our tech base, we've got to like boot camp, boot camp, boot camp, like whatever, and that's great, and everybody should learn these things, whatever, right? But at the end of the day, the reason why Silicon Valley worked the way that it did is because out of necessity, the best solutions come out, because guess what? Banks weren't near there. It's a freaking desert. It's like had some orchards. People were there because land was cheap. People started building stuff in their garage, not because it was awesome. Then they're like, oh man, how are we going to do this? Well, I'm going to go over here. This guy started this. Give me some money. Give me some money. They gave him some money. And then all of a sudden it's HP. Right? And they're like, okay, that worked once. We got to stick together. We got to band together. But back to the whole MTV generation thing, why are we trying to map that? Like, and no offense, why are we building incubator spaces? Like, why are we building, like, co-working? Like, like, why is co-working so expensive? Like, these are, like, all criticisms I have. Like, why are we trying to build something that is more luxurious, right, than the thing that started the thing? Which is necessity. Which is necessity. So, I'm like, everybody gripes about this. Like, and nobody knows the answer. I don't, like... But it's like, it's frustrating because it's like, I look at all the entrepreneurial paths that like defined where I am and I'm by no means not like somebody that's like going to be on RJ Carmen's yacht, like flying, nor do I want to be. But it's just like, we are focused on beg borrowing and stealing models and ideas here. Now this conversation is extremely local, right? We want to do it here. Yeah. And then nobody has a really good why. Right, economic development. Well, if it's economic development, why is the state, why is all their grants tied up just into fitting up the building? Like, yeah. this is the funny thing that like we deal with. Like, even at a mature startup, well, sure they'll give you a grant, but it's only for the fit up of the building. It doesn't make any sense. Why are we not doing it like in education and training of the people? So, all of these things spiral out of control, and it's just because we get into this copy mode. And so we go back to like, what were my mess ups in the beginning? It's because of the misunderstanding of what the opportunity is here. And I don't know that I, like, going back in time, if I did it different, if I would even do it any different, because it just felt like the right cycle to go through all these things. But, like, I think we have an opportunity here. Yeah. Because we don't know what the hell we're doing. 